either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Well, we've had some big butts-in-seats movies the last few weeks. Uh, it's getting a little quiet here for the next couple, but that doesn't mean there's not good stuff to talk about, and we'll get into it. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we're from MadWolf.com. Let's start out with a new one on Netflix. A British diplomat travels to Munich in the run-up to World War II, where a former classmate of his from Oxford is also en route, but is working for the German government. This is called Munich, the Edge of War. Hitler is lying when he claims to want peace. People will suffer. That document is the proof. They'd kill you for even thinking about it. What happened to you? I have to do it! cannot play poker with a gangster without having some cards up on sleeve. This is one of those historical dramas that mixes a lot of fact with a lot of fiction. And I think for history buffs, it's going to be fascinating. And I, I did find it compelling, especially toward the end, for really one specific reason that we'll get into here in a minute. But it's based on a novel. And, uh, yeah, as the synopsis says, it's the run-up to World War II, and they're, they're trying to figure out if, if Hitler can be trusted in saying that he's going to stop invading countries, basically. And it, it centers on the Munich Conference of 1938, which is something that historians have really argued about for years, whether British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain was foolish to think that Hitler would stop invading countries um, to and 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 they signed this uh, this document, this peace treaty, I guess, to avoid war at the time. Did did he know he was just punting it down the road? Because there was always this theory, as this movie gets into, that right up at that time there was going to be a mutiny by German generals that was going to take him down. And uh, the story goes that by signing this treaty and holding off the invasion of the Czech republics. It cut off that planned mutiny before it was even allowed to begin. But then other historians say, well, that mutiny was doomed to fail anyway. So what this temporary peace did, it gave the Allied forces more time to get ready for the inevitable war. And they desperately needed that time to win it. So it depends which side you take. We're not historians, but no, that's, indeed. that's been the, the argument over the years. And I, I think this one does take... Aside in that, and the most fascinating thing about this for me was the new light that it tries to shed on Neville Chamberlain, who's played here uh, in a great performance by Jeremy Irons. Yeah, Jeremy Irons is really, really wonderful in this movie. And I did like the espionage thriller angle. I think that the performances are very strong. So I think that sometimes when you have those movies that mix fact and fiction, sometimes mm -hmm. the fiction comes up a little short. Yeah. And I, I didn't feel that here. Part of it is because George Mackay, who plays the lead, is always so good. Yeah. Uh, and and the, uh, the tension here, the fictional tension, comes from a stolen document that is going to serve as proof of Hitler's true plans if they can get that document to him. And that is where George Mackay's character, Hugh Leggett, comes in because he was one of, or really the main personal secretary 
for Neville Chamberlain at the time. So an old friend of his from Oxford gets this this document and is trying to get it to George Mackay and then to the prime minister because they think that will convince him that he cannot enter into this peace treaty, this temporary peace treaty with Hitler. So that's where the tension comes in. Like a lot of spy dramas, it gets a little talky. And some, there's some dry moments to it. You really got to pay attention to, to all the spy business going on, even though he's, a, he's one of those reluctant spies. And yeah. we've seen a few more of those movies Lately. in the last mm-hmm. few years as well. But uh, there is tension to it, and it's well plotted, and it is well acted. But I think it is fascinating how they try to give you a different look at Neville Chamberlain, because over the years he's become just a, a go-to for a, a spineless, foolhardy you know, uh, picture of appeasement. And this movie tries to say, well, Maybe he was smarter than we think. Yeah, yeah. And I think that Jeremy Irons really finds the right sort of note to hit um, so that he can be both of those things at once. So that yeah. you can still come away with, I understand why people thought that. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, I just I just really thought his performance was wonderful. Yeah, so if you like the, the historical dramas with a little bit of, little bit of fiction, not all the way to the, the Quentin Tarantino type of revisionist history, because <laughs> there is a moment in this yeah. movie where both of us went, boy, you know what Tarantino <laughs> would do, right? <laughs> so it doesn't do that. It still sticks to, I mean, basically you know how it ends before it ends. The point is... Uh, getting there, uh, but yeah, it's uh, there's got some some compelling moments, even though it's not it's not altogether great. It's worth checking out, especially if you like the history with a bit of fiction, and that is on Netflix now called Munich: The Edge of War. Well, here's a fun one: King Louis XIV's quest for immortality leads him to capture and steal a mermaid's life force, a move that is further complicated by his illegitimate daughter's discovery of the creature. This is finally the king's daughter creature in the water you should not be swimming in there she called me she's certainly not of this world nor am i the creature will be killed placing the life force into our hands this is murder she is your pet she's all but human the mermaid must escape the king we're the only ones who can stop him do you believe in coincidence no you say finally because this movie was made so long ago that the two leads who met while filming are now married with two children. Yeah, this is an amazing story. It was it's this is an adaptation, loose adaptation of a book called The Moon and the Sun and back in the late 90s it actually beat out the original Game of Thrones novel for the award. It's the Nebula Award for best science fantasy uh, book. Uh, but in I didn't read it. We didn't read it. But in looking into it, they've made a lot of changes uh, <laughs> to getting it to the screen. And yeah, originally it was it was optioned for a, a movie right away in the late 90s. Finally, after many changes, studios and cast, I think Natalie Portman was attached to this at one point. It was started filming in 2014. It had a release date in 2015. And right before it was going to be released. It was pulled at the time for some vague reasons about working on the special effects. And now it's here. And whoever was working on those special effects for, what, seven years has been stealing somebody's money because <laughs> the, the effects are they're They're almost laughable when it gets to the underwater parts with this mermaid, because that they've turned this into what looked like when I when I read the synopsis of the book, it looked like a, a good, solid sci fi allegory. 
It's not now. It's a weak-sauced YA romance about this king. Pierce Brosnan is the king, and he's got this daughter. Uh, he, she, he knows that she's his daughter, and uh, she's played by Kaya Scaldelario, who we just saw in that uh, rabbit, um, the Resident Evil. Raccoon City. Raccoon City. Rabbit. rabbit. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, and she is a talented musician, and she's in a convent. Uh, and then he decides to bring her to the court under the guise of needing a new court composer. And so she comes there not knowing that uh, he's her father. And then you've got, of course, let, let me go back. The whole thing is introduced as part of like an opening with a, a picture book with narration by Julie Andrews. Okay, and that only adds to the Princess Diaries type of feel about this because you really end up feeling like this is sort of a Princess Diaries knockoff because she gets the makeover and she doesn't know she's royal. And then she's got an arranged marriage to somebody she doesn't love and then some adventure with this sailor that she does love. And that's the guy she ended up marrying. Benjamin Walker is his name. And yeah, the two met on the set. They shared their first kiss in the movie and now they're married and have two kids. And yes, there's this mermaid. There's a plot to... Stake, take this mermaid that was captured by the sailor that she loves, and they're going to cut out the life force of this mermaid, who's played by Bing Bing Fan, and give it to the king so he can be immortal. Okay. And then the daughter finds out about that plan, and she wants to put a stop to it because she has befriended the mermaid, spending time underwater, and that's when some of these underwater effects start to look ridiculous. It's so fascinating, though, because it took so long to get here. And, and it's, it's so bad. It's such a mess. Yeah. It is such a mess, but sort of a, a weird train wreck to watch. Now, the high priest of the court is played by William Hurt, and I think William Hurt and Pierce Brosnan— I think they're kind of having fun with this. Maybe they know what they're into, and they're just seeming to enjoy elevating the material. As I said, uh, Kaya Scodelario, she's got a charisma about her. You know, I like her as a performer. But, man, director Sean McNamara, who did Soul Surfer years ago, and the screenwriter, the one credited screenwriter, although I think there's a bunch that had their hands in it, uh, screenwriter Ronald Bass, they just broad brush everything so much. And keep the pace illogical just so that you're not expected to think much about it at all. And actually, some of the interiors, the royal palaces and things, they're lavish and they're nicely presented. But boy, once they get outside, some of the action that there is, it seems like you're watching one of those live shows at a Disney theme park. That's about <laughs> as authentic as it. And like mm -hmm. I said, don't even start on the underwater stuff because, oh, man. <laughs> so <laughs> this... <laughs> And, and, you know, The King's Daughter is such an uninspired title. You know, it should have been just called, just release it already. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, this is one to watch for, for comedic purposes. Or I guess maybe if you're a, a, a teenager who just loves these sappy romances and the royal trappings, I guess, maybe you might like it. But if it. you're a fan of the source material, no, I would steer clear. I would stay or steer way clear. And that is The King's Daughter. Finally here after... So long. Why? We don't know, but it's here in theaters now. We'll do an international drama next after a toxic and mysterious pink cloud appeared. Giovanna finds herself stuck in a flat with a man she just met, changing her life in a way she never expected. This is the pink cloud. Well, this is a fascinating movie right from the get-go. The first thing you see, and this is the debut feature for uh, Brazilian writer and director Iuli Gerbasse. Did I, am I close? 
Yes. I, as far as I know, that okay. sounds right as to me. As far as we know, we're moving on. <laughs> All right. But the first thing it gives you is a disclaimer, just a bit of information that says she wrote this movie in 2017 and it was filmed in 2019, which at the time you're thinking, okay. And then as this story plays out, it's it's just uncanny how she got this in before the pandemic started because you would have sworn this was a lockdown type of production. Yeah, you absolutely would. But this, yeah, they're in Brazil and we, we center on this main couple, Giovanna and Iago. And it seems like they just had a hookup and they're they're waking up out on the terrace. At, and then these alarms start going off and these loudspeakers telling everybody they have to get inside because this mysterious pink cloud, if you're exposed to it for 10 seconds, you're dead. And then they have to go inside, and lockdown begins, and quarantine begins, and days turn to weeks, and weeks turn to months, and months turn to years. And so right away, if you're thinking, oh, my God, we've had to live through this. I don't want any part of that. <laughs> Understandable. Absolutely. Understandable. It's As I said in the written review, this is a premise that's just as likely to attract an audience as it is to repel it. Because who wants to go to a theater or, like, oh, let's hear some, here's some lighthearted entertainment. <laughs> but it's fascinating to think that it was conceived of and, and filmed and everything and written before all this happened. Because while she doesn't get everything right, some of the things she does get right are really uncanny. And, and the fact that we have lived through some of this does bring about some unsteadiness to the internal logic that you're going to think, okay, okay, that's fine. But boy... The things that she does get right and how she guessed correctly about human nature is just there's a couple of really Twilight Zone moments in this where you just it just really hits you hard about how she's able to comment on things that haven't actually yet happened. Yeah. And that, that have come to play out. And even though it's centered mostly on this couple who didn't intend to live together, <laughs> uh, and that is very intimate, obviously, with things that remind you of not only room from just a few years ago, but then going back to the woman in the dunes where the couple has to, you know, the man has to realize that he has to live there with this woman. And that's the main, the main relationship that we, uh, that we're focused on, but yet it still manages to comment on the population at large and how she thinks the population would react to something like this. And that, that's really what, what gets fascinating because when you see some, some side characters that come into the picture through video chats or things like that, uh, it, it really is just, uh, as I keep saying, uncanny how she, she wrote this even before it happened. So understandable if you're not ready for for something <laughs> like that. But even, you know, disclaimer aside, and that's what I found fascinating. I started thinking afterwards, boy, how would this have hit me if the disclaimer would have come after? Right. Or if I didn't come at all? Right. Knowing it ahead of time was clearly a, a conscious choice, but I just wonder how it would have been different if I did not, if we'd not known it until afterward. Uh, but it's e either way, you, you take that out of it, and it's still it's a compelling drama. Uh, but putting that in, and you just really mark her down as someone who, at least for this one project, has a real insight into human nature. She's got a good feel for it, at least for this one project. So we'll see. But if you're up for it, it's in theaters now in limited release. And, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Called The Pink Cloud. Next up is a drama about an author who writes best-selling children's books about unlocking your fears but has yet to unlock her own. When her daughter is born, that trauma is brought to the fore and with it a crushing battle to survive. This is called A Mouthful of Air. The stars were starting to disappear from the sky. There was nothing left for her to wish upon. What if you stop loving me? 
I'm never gonna stop loving you. You can do this, Jewel. You can. I was walking through a world that was black and white. Now I'm just starting to see color again. Sometimes the stars are blocked by the clouds. But even if you don't see them, they're always there. This is Amanda Seyfried, who's just always impressive. Mm -hmm. She really is. And she does a great job in the lead of this film, playing a woman who is trying very hard to overcome, really, um, postpartum depression. But her postpartum depression is kind of, you know, meeting head on with, uh, with her own sort of childhood trauma and her own battles with depression and... She's having a very difficult time, and um, and the fact that she's a children's book author gives you a gives you a, a peek into really how she's trying to deal with it on her own, and how she's trying to help other people deal with it on their own, mm-hmm. finding their courage and finding their hope. And it's it's very sweet the way that kind of thing is presented. It's also very tragic uh, because you have such a good sense of what she is trying to help herself figure out how to can how to deal with to deal with. Yeah. And this is the latest. The writer and director is Amy Koppelman, who years ago you might have seen. Uh, it got a lot of talk at the time because of the performance from Sarah Silverman. Mm-hmm. Uh, a somewhat shocking movie called I Smile Back. And so there's a real theme here about female trauma specifically that Amy Koppelman really wants to talk about. Yeah, she wrote both films. This is the first mm-hmm. one that she directs. And okay. you know, it, you you wouldn't think it's the first uh, dir- I mean, it's very assured direction. The film looks great. The performances are great. Top to bottom. Amy Irving comes in and plays ah. the lead character's mother. And it, they do a great job with performance and with the script itself into giving you a sense of the very supportive and loving family that this woman comes from. And yet this is where her problems begin is mm. with this family and with their frailties and that she's worried she's going to pass these along. It's very realistic. It is really depressing. <laughs> it's a heartbreaking film. Um, and well, it doesn't leave you with a great deal of hope. It's yeah. also, in a way, very forgiving. It's sort of like we just talked about for the Pink Cloud. You, you may not be ready for yeah. it, so go in knowing this is not a lighthearted romp. No, no, indeed. But there's some great performances here. Yeah, and this is on VOD and a bargain, a bargain rent or buy, rent from four ninety nine uh, on Prime. It is a mouthful of air. And next is an interesting project. It's two separate features that we're going to review as one, and we'll tell you why. Ulysses is a hundred-year-old man battling for redemption on his last night on Earth. Faced with imminent death, he is forced to rethink his past, his present, and his take on reality. This is Nocturna Side A, The Great Old Man's Night, and Nocturna Side B, Where Elephants Go to Die. So both of these films are from Argentinian writer-director Gonzalo Calzada. And it's such a fascinating idea. I'm not sure it lands as well as he wants it to. The first film, Side A, which is uh, The Great Old Man's Night, Right. it's really quite lovely, kind of a haunted house, a little bit take on what what is essentially a more Michael Haneke's film about. Yeah, it reminded us both of of Michael Haneke, not only because of that, but also the way Haneke has taken his own work and 
looked at it from a different perspective exactly. before. And so this guy is doing it from it's the same story from different perspectives. Yeah. And, and so in the, in the first one, you spend a lot of time with Ulysses, who is absolutely wonderful. It is such a great performance. Yeah. And he's played by Pepe Soriano. He's amazing. He's wonderful. And you just love this guy. But one of the things that the movie is in itself is a little bit surreal, just a little bit, because he is the point of view character and he is suffering from, if not dementia outright, from from being 100 years old. 100 years old. Yeah. (laughs) So he's easily confused and he's not sure what's going on. And the thing is that he's so close to death that he's actually kind of seeing the beyond right now. So there's a lot that he's trying to figure out. And the film flashes back to his childhood because he keeps getting lost and seeing his own childhood memories in front of him. And it flashes to sort of the ghosts in the building. And so it's in itself, it's a little bit surreal and Mm -hmm. a very well filmed, really moving haunted house kind of a story Mm -hmm. and excellent in that way. Now side B where elephants go to die it's the same story. It's the same night. It's the same apartment building. It's just that it is um, told from the perspective of, of a different character and in an outright, absolutely sort of spectral vision. Yeah, and keep in mind, these are two separate movies. The first one, Side A, is about 90 minutes, and the second was about an hour, yes. I think. Yeah. But the second one, does not. it just does not land as well because it's not as if it's sort of the surreal version of a very traditional film. It's just a more surreal version of a... Not very traditional film. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, The the Great Old Man's Night is a really solid, spooky, I wouldn't call it a horror film, but it's a spooky film. It's got a lot to say. It's got some great performances. Side B becomes tedious pretty quickly. I, I think that it's, it's a lot of B-roll. It's a lot of repurposed stuff. Scenes go on for too long. It simply didn't work as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I highly recommend Side A. Yeah, and it's, and it's got some, some sadness to it. I saw you sniffling over there. Well, uh, it's very we're watching. Sad. Yeah, it's yeah. very sad. Yeah, but keep in mind again, these are two separate films: Nocturna Side A, The Great Old Man's Night, and Nocturna Side B, Where Elephants Go to Die. Uh, we like Side A better. They're both available now on VOD. Got a documentary next. It's based on Mallory Smith's posthumously published memoir, Salt in My Soul. Offers a look inside the mind of a young woman trying to live while dying. Diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. Mallory turned to a secret diary to record her thoughts. This is Salt in My Soul. Hi, I'm Mallory Smith, and I have cystic fibrosis. She would write in it all the time. I wanted to read it, and she would not allow me. I feel like people with CF are privy to secrets it takes most other people a lifetime to understand. How lucky we are to be alive. That we can leave behind a legacy when we go that will impact others that simple things are often the most beautiful, that love and happiness are the most important things to strive for. Rachel Willis reviewed this one for us for the website, and boy, it's a beautiful movie. It really sheds light from a perspective that you're not used to, and it'll, it's just a gut punch of a film. Yeah, here's another one. We've had a few here in a row that are sad, and you <laughs> you got to know that going in. But it's fascinating, her, Mallory, to see her approach to living and ultimately dying. And also, I thought it was fascinating that up until the very last days, she would not let anyone read this journal. And, you know, they they wanted to. And she didn't give passwords to all her stuff until the very last days. And then this movie was assembled using, you know, footage of when she was maybe feeling better and there had some good days and mm-hmm. bad days. And then when it got toward the end, and it is, it's, it's heart-wrenching, but at the same time, 
you see someone who is facing their fate and it can it becomes inspirational. Yeah, it, yeah, it really does. It's so well worth watching. It's it was a it was a very popular memoir for great reasons. And oh I think, yeah, I think if you're not familiar with the book, this is a movie that is is really powerful and moving. If you are familiar with the book, then this is clearly a must see. Yeah, the director is Will Battersby, and again, you can check out Rachel Willis's written review, and she loved it. Uh, the written review is at MadWolf.com. But again, know that it's going to be emotional, but in an, in a good uh, soul stirring sort of way, and that is available now on VOD. It's called Salt in My Soul. And we'll wrap up with one that sounds like a documentary, but isn't. When the Chinese Communist Party launches a brutal crackdown against 100 million citizens, a jaded American reporter and a team of innocent students risk everything to expose the deadly propaganda and fight for freedom. This is called Unsilenced. Chicago! No, okay, no, no, I'm a reporter with Chicago Post. You begged me to get you back there. Whatever it took. I cannot sit by and watch them be manipulated into turning against each other. Just as easy The government is conducting one of the largest scale propaganda campaigns in history. You just want to wait for it. What are you going to do? Walking to the prison at the Mendocium? Proud of China, expose their lies to the world. And this one was reviewed at MadWolf.com by Brandon Thomas. And he really uh, applauded the passion behind this because it's got a lot of important things to say, obviously, about fighting for freedom. He just... He just didn't think it was it was constructed that well from a from a narrative standpoint. Yeah, that well, filmmaker Leon Lee has something very important to say. He's kind of a novice filmmaker, and so the the product itself as a movie doesn't fly as well as it ought to. But it it really does have very important and eye opening things to say about this particular era, uh, this particular issue in China. Yeah, and you'll recognize the uh, one of the lead actors who plays the reporter, the American reporter, Sam Trammell. And he's got a long list of credits. True Blood, he was in Homeland, he was in The Fault in Our Stars. One of those, he's kind of a that guy. Yep, yep. But uh, if you're more of a TV watcher than, than we are, you probably recognize him from other projects. But again, you can check out Brandon's complete review at MadWolf.com. And he thought it was, again, a lot of passion, but uh, could need some work on the construction side. And that is Unsilenced, available now on VOD. All right, let's head to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. All right, let's get back in the know, back in the lobby with Daniel Baldwin, a.k.a. the Schlocketeer, with all the latest uh, comings and goings and delays. What do we see this week? Well, uh, anyone who, like me, has missed Guillermo del Toro's remake of Nightmare Alley in theaters, um, it will be streaming on both Hulu and HBO Max come February 1st. Oh, you've yeah. missed that, huh? So yeah, I didn't get oh. to see it. It left too fast. Yeah, it's a good one. We liked it. And then on February 3rd, there is a monster movie called Slapface hitting Shudder. So that's a unique title. Slapface? <laughs> Slapface. What yes. did the five fingers say to the face? <laughs> <laughs> There's an elevated slasher hitting VOD on February 8th called Student Body. And HBO Max has a psychological thriller titled The Girl Before that will be hitting their service on February 10th. Also on February 10th will be a psychological drama called Shapeless hitting VOD. And yet again on February 10th, there's a foreign vampire film called All the Moons 
hitting Shutter. Then uh, Richard Bates Jr.'s new satirical comedy, King Knight, hits theaters and VOD on February 17th. And, of course, that's the director of um, Excision, <laughs> his new movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've actually seen King Knight, and it's a – don't go in expecting it's Excision. It's actually a lighthearted film. <laughs> oh, okay. We <laughs> love Excision. It's good. Mm-hmm. But we wouldn't recommend it to everyone. <laughs> no. February 17th, we'll also see the release of Netflix's supernatural crime martial arts flick, Fistful of Vengeance, which is a feature-length follow-up to their miniseries, Woo Assassins. And then Cinedime's Haunted House thriller, Incarnation, will arrive on February 18th on both VOD and limited theatrical release. Director Philip Noyce has a new thriller called The Desperate Hour, which is hitting theaters and VOD on February 25th. And then here's another long-in-the-tooth awaiting release movie. Um, There's a Sharon Stone and Andy Garcia romantic drama called What About Love. It was supposed to come out next month on the same day as Kenneth Branagh's Death on the Nile, Liam Neeson's Blacklight, and the quote-unquote delightful-looking Marry Me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Whose quote is that? (laughs) Not mine. (laughs) So I can understand them wanting to move it. They have moved it, but they've pushed it back a full year to February of next year. Wow. Which is odd. But here's an odder thing with that one. This one was shot in 2012. (laughs) Well, that's uh, not Not sure what's going on of late, but hey... (laughs) I guess better late than never is the... Uh... I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> Probably not. And then the uh, the other big news of the week is that he's been talking about it for years, but Michael Mann, in addition, I think he has a new uh, HBO Max show coming up, but he's also been dabbling in literature, and he has a book hitting this August that was co-written with a crime thriller novelist named Meg Gardner, but it is Heat 2. Not a movie, but he's written a sequel to his movie that's also a, it's sort of a Godfather 2-esque thing that's both a prequel and a sequel. I think it's always weird when directors and actors write novels. Yeah. Like Gene Hackman and Ethan Hawke and Wesley Snipes, Wes Craven, Kevin Costner, they've all written books. Well, now Michael Mann has written a sequel to Heat. Um, You know, whether or not that'll translate into a film or a Mm -hmm. miniseries at some point, it's hard to say. It wouldn't surprise me, though. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Some dates and a little bit of weirdness at the end for you there with a uh, <laughs> 11-year-old up. movie yeah. and a written sequel to an action flick. <laughs> We're always up for a little weirdness. Thank you much. <laughs> All right. You can always right. uh, keep in touch with Daniel on the socials at The Schlocketeer. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Looking ahead to next week, uh, not a big week, but at the top we do have two movies that are very much going to be in Oscar contention, starting with Flea. Parallel Mothers. Yeah, that is Almodovar's latest that we got to see a few weeks ago. Also, a local movie uh, done here, right here in Columbus, Ohio. They, Them, Us is out next week. I'm Not in Love. Confession. Boris Karloff, the man behind the monster. How excited am I for that? That's going to be fun. And something called La Soga Salvation. We'll see what those are about next week. Uh, Until then, what'd you think of The King's Daughter? Worth it? (laughs) Don't see it. Don't see it. Let them talk about it, though. You can talk about any of the movies with us. We can always keep the conversation going. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Also on Facebook and Instagram, it's Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website where you can find all of our written reviews and our other horror movie-only podcast called Fright Club. 
Find that all right there at madwolf.com. And you know what? If you don't find anything to interest you this week, it might be a good time to uh, rewatch Rocky Horror Picture Show, maybe Fight Club, because as we just as we were taped this today, we just found out this morning the passing of Meatloaf. Uh, so it might be a good time to revisit some of that and maybe crank up some Bad Out of Hell. Because as much as he did with music, some people forget, he was a really fine actor. He really was. I think that he was not appreciated as such while he was alive. So hopefully people will revisit those films now. Exactly right. I remember thinking at the time that he had a real shot to get nominated for an Oscar for Fight Club. He was so good. Because he was so good in that. But he was so good in a lot of different roles. So uh, R.I.P. Meatloaf. And uh, until next week. Stay well. We'll talk then. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. <laughs>